The things that are a greater threat nowadays are authoritarianism, populism, lack of respect and knowledge about rule of law, which goes right back to how we are educating our populations in Canada and the West. There is less understanding of the importance of institutions like the rule of law and what it does for us. People don't think about it. They take it for granted, and we've dumbed down a lot of, particularly in politics, approaches to things for simplistic snake oil salesman type solutions. And that, to me, is a far greater threat to what criminal lawyers and the rule of law and the protection of people against abuses of the power of the state. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? and how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In the course of practicing for almost 40 years, Donald Bain has entrenched himself as one of the best criminal defense lawyers Canada has ever known. Despite this, his humility, compassion for human suffering, and the pursuit of justice is as vibrant as it was when he first became a lawyer. Don's remarkable journey in his pursuit of justice takes us from a farm on the prairies to varsity football fields to even traveling with the KGB at the height of the Cold War in the Soviet Union. His past cases are some of Canada's most well-known and include acting as defense counsel for Senator Mike Duffy, acting for the coroner in the Ashley Smith inquiry, and more recently, his endless efforts opposing and now correcting what seems to be a clear error and injustice for his client Hassan Diab and his extradition from Canada. The release of this particular episode comes at a time when Canadian extradition laws are the topic of worldwide media after the recent arrest of Meng Wanzhou of Huawei as she awaits for a bail hearing and likely deportation to the United States on allegations of U.S.-Iran sanction violations. Before we begin, I just want to say thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada, who, like many in our past episodes, has provided us the means to bring you wonderful guests like Don Bain. As a leading legal publisher, LexisNexis Canada's resources are as exhaustive as Donald's years of practice and cover all the topics and areas that Don has mastered over the years. For those interested in criminal law, be sure to visit LexisNexis.ca and check out the Halsbury Laws of Canada series, Criminal Offences and Defences, and Halsbury's Laws of Canada's Criminal Procedure, authored and edited by Don's close friend and other legal icon, Alan Gold. You will also find on their website the latest edition of Alan Gold's Practitioner's Ontario Criminal Practice 2019 edition of the Criminal Code of Canada. If this episode triggers you to dig deeper into the law of extradition, you will find Canadian Extradition Law Practice 5th edition by Dr. Gary Botling, an invaluable resource in understanding this complex and little-known area of law. Dr. Gary Botling provides cumulative knowledge, valuable insights, and strategic advice that make this the most comprehensive resource available on current extradition law. A quick 
cross-reference tool for lawyers and judges alike. It will also appeal to government officials charged with the responsibility of advancing extradition applications both in Canada and in requesting countries. Now let's join Don Bain as he discusses all these issues on this episode of Of Counsel. So we have a really special episode today of uh, our Of Council podcast. I'm sitting here at the Montebello Resort, and um, I'm here for a conference, and I'm very, very pleased to uh, find out that criminal lawyer Donald Bain is willing to be on our on our show. So welcome, Don, to our podcast. Thanks, Sean. I'll start with you know what I ask a lot of lawyers just to get things moving, and that's just really kind of how you started into it. You've been practicing for about 40 years now, and over that time, you've made a name for yourself as, at least in many people's eyes, one of the best criminal defense lawyers Canada's seen. And in 2006, um, to, to note that, you were awarded the highly prestigious G. Arthur Martin Award by the CLA for your significant contributions to criminal justice in Canada. So... Uh, why law? Why criminal law? What started you on this very impressive career? So there's probably two answers or two parts to the answer. One, I got a scholarship to go to law school when I was at Queen's uh, that meant I could keep playing football at Queen's. Right. Also, and, and I guess in less jest, my dad had wanted to be a lawyer. Um, he came from a, a Ukrainian-Canadian background out on the prairies, and uh, his mother died shortly after his childbirth. The family lost the farm in the Depression. He was raised by Ukrainian grandparents. And then the war came, and he joined up, and he never went to university. Um, and he always used to talk a little bit about uh, from time to time about uh, law and being a lawyer. So I guess the, the, the seed was planted. Yeah, very similar to, you, you know, you hear that a lot with lawyers. And, and uh, one that comes to mind right away is Brian and Eddie Greenspan, same sort of thing, fathers who were going to go to law school. And um, so that, that's um, because it seems to me there is almost a common thread among lawyers, at least, you know, really remarkable ones like yourself. There's there's almost like an underlying drive as opposed to just falling into law that there's there's a passion there. But why criminal law? Well, it's where the action is. I <laughs> mean, um, I didn't want to be a lawyer who sat at a desk. Um, it just seemed to me law was about arguing cases and nobody does more trials than a criminal lawyer. Plus, my articles had a lot to do with that. Where was that? Uh, that was at Binks and Chilcot here in Ottawa. So my wife and I finished law school together. Then we took off for Europe for a year. We just traveled around Europe. Then we came back. and So I, was, uh, I had a tryout in the CFL in Ottawa, so I needed to find a law firm to do my articles. I had an article after law school. And uh, so I, Kenny Binks... And Mary Jane Binks had been a classmate of mine, his sister, much younger sister. So uh, I, I ended up with Binks and Chilcott, and they were kind of a, they were a great firm to article with. It was pretty wild and woolly. It was before the days of disclosure. Hmm. Um, we students did things that would make the law society and judges cringe to hear. I mean, we did trials. We'd get a file that morning. Uh, there was very little information in it, and you learned how to 
think on your feet, deal with the police. And there were, they did civil work too, but I, I, it wasn't interesting to me. So that is really interesting to me because, you know, as a lawyer, I've never known anything other than complete disclosure. I'm post Stinchcomb. What was that like practicing in those days? And, and what was the change like when, when Stinchcomb came down? So Stinchcomb and the Charter are the two biggest dramatic changes in the practice of criminal law. No disclosure meant little preparation, too, from mm. what I saw. Right. Without being critical of the way older guys, at least the ones I saw, were practicing criminal law, it was kind of the field. If you couldn't get on with a civil law firm, well, you could be a criminal lawyer. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the state of it. I mean, there were exceptional people. They were almost all in Toronto, uh, Arthur Martin and Arthur Maloney. Uh, but if you were aspiring to be a patrician you went into a professional patrician in the law you went into civil law as a civil litigator and that seemed wrong to me it just kind of seemed this could be professionalized this could be done better so what was it like it was like the file was microscopically thin and you had to make tactical decisions. The police weren't well prepared either. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did a murder case, and one of the key pieces of evidence was a glass. And uh, the Vanier police actually, uh, they were short of glass in their, in their little detachment, and they decided to, just to wash it and use it. I mean, crazy things happened. Right. Uh, that So police have become more professionalized. Crowns are more professionalized. Disclosure upped everybody's game. Let me ask you, you know, as a, as a, uh, did you end up getting into the CFL? I played through the, the Grey Cup year uh, of the Riders through the exhibition season, and then they wanted to convert me to a defensive back. It's a long story. But let me, the, the, where I was going with that is, yeah. you know, as a high-level athlete, you know, you're dealing with a very dynamic playing field, literally. And what do you feel you learned lessons being a football pro or a very high-level athlete into litigation, and is that carried through? Yeah, but I wouldn't say that I learned lessons. I think there are people playing football. I learned to play football. My dad stayed in the Canadian Army after the war. Uh, I did part of my high school down in Virginia. That's where I really started playing football. Being a quarterback kind of came naturally to me, and it, those were the days you also called all the plays you ran the whole offense and so it just seemed to me com being competitive I found it easy to uh, be a leader in a group of good athletes mm. um, and I don't mean I wasn't the best athlete among them but I appreciated the skills of other people so I think that combination suited criminal law Mm -hmm. I don't think football taught me that. I think I just, I'm that kind of guy. Mm -hmm. But on the playing field, you know, one of the things that I've heard this from other criminal lawyers who've had backgrounds where, whether it's through, um, you know, athleticism or whether it's because, um, in one example, they, they came from living on the streets and they became an exceptionally good criminal lawyer. When you face, you know, true fear and true threat of harm, um, does it sort of put things into perspective before a jury? I never, I never felt a risk of harm. 
Mm. Quarterback's a pretty namby pamby position, <laughs> as all my lineman <laughs> friends tell me, who right. who who are have artificial joints right now because they <laughs> sure. were busy trying to protect me. Like I come from like a lot of guys at Queens in those days from a blue collar background. Mm-hmm. Nobody in my family went to university. We're Westerners, farming people. I've still got relatives of big farms in Saskatchewan. My grandfather had a farm in Manitoba. I think it's, for me, it was easy to empathize with people who didn't have much money, who had to kind of scrabble their way through life. And I think that's one of the things I try to do in law is humanize the accused and their experience and where they're coming from. So that combined with competitiveness, I mean, if you feel like you understand and connect with this person, not that I become friends with my clients, but really understand where they're coming from, I think that helps. Mm -hmm. So you attended Queens and despite not you know, uh, coming from a family with, you know, lots of education, you did continue and you went and did your LLM at the London School of Economics. You later did an MBA. How important to your development was all this additional education? Well, I, I, I think I was a good student. I was a hard worker. Look, I, I, the guys I hung around with growing up in high school were, some of them were bad boys. Mm. Like I liked the rough crowd. I was the only one who studied. They thought I was an idiot. I spent a lot of time <laughs> studying. And my mother was uh, like one of my daughters, kind of a tiger mom. Mm-hmm. She was going to make sure her kids did something. Mm-hmm. So she instilled that in us early and um, kept me. Yeah, so I, I, I did well in school. And as a result, it was a kind of a self-fulfilling cycle that... You do well, you get a scholarship, you do better, you, and, and that's, so yeah, I, I did an LLM and an MBA, and, um, and, and I like learning. I, I mean, one of the things that happens to lawyers is we become very blinkered. We become, and you have to, you're so focused on your cases. There's lots going on in life that's completely fascinating. So many interesting people, and conversely, what lawyers don't see, like when I stepped out for a few years of the legal criminal law world, did the MBA, got involved with my wife's family's business at a senior level, was the total difference. Lawyers, but particularly criminal lawyers, don't make a lot of money. Right. Business people do. Lawyers work their asses off and business people make deals they can make a lot of money over lunch because they it's a lot of it is contacts and i thought oddly enough despite the fact that the dean of the business school uh, when i got in uh, came to address the the our class and said this is now the premier degree used to be the law degree now the MBAs, the premier degree. And I came to learn that that was not true, that lawyers, although we complain about each other, are smart, skilled people. There is, in a room of litigators, there's a lot of skill. 
and a lot of good people. And, and what we do became much more important to me watching this contrast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I see this a lot, especially with younger lawyers, where they'll, they're very hard workers, very intelligent, and they'll give up really almost their whole life at times just to try and save a client. And and sort of, I'm, and, and there's maybe an assumption there that probably has worked up to that point in their life that if they work really hard, put in 12-hour days, they're going to be okay. And unfortunately, you see a lot of these lifeguards drowning. So is there a tip that you try and impress onto younger lawyers to maybe a business tip or something to try and survive so they can help others? I'd say a more lifestyle tip. Yeah, you have to take care of yourself. So my formula, I always loved summer holidays when I was a kid growing up, that long summer break from school. So when I started practicing law, Pat McCann and I started together, and we were kind of like the hippie lawyers. We were bearded, long-haired, and and we were really trying to do things differently. And so we were going to work a four-day week. Pat would get Mondays off. I'd get Fridays off. I mean, that quickly eroded because we sudden I mean you can't you're doing a jury trial you can't tell them I'm not here Friday but I always took all summer off we have a farm on Wolf Island we've got four kids um, and we would move to the farm the day the kids got out and come back Labor Day and in those days there was no cell phones it was it wasn't even faxes and all there was on the island was a party line and people quickly learned if they called me there the few who had the number the operate the three operators on the island listened to all the calls there was no <laughs> you couldn't have any confidential conversations so i really got away for two months mm-hmm. all my life mm-hmm. and the judges were very good i made sure not to schedule trials i just went away for two months and kind of and i found that two weeks three weeks like that break that lawyers take for themselves was just enough time to get your heart rate down to a normal person's life and it was the next seven weeks that restored you Mm, i see so you know in this day and age though i mean there's it's just so fast paced you're never off and there's even sometimes an expectation but you know, what What do you say to your younger associates to try and keep that balance? You're quite right. Things have changed. I mean, technology, social media, it is harder now. I still say take time for yourself. Take time for your family. I got farming in my blood, I guess. Um, for me, it's very restorative. Uh, I like working in the soil. I love trees. Um I can get away, and I think for younger people, they this is a very demanding profession. Um, I've watched it take a toll on people, good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, emotional, mental breakdowns. Um, it's a high-stress job. I, I don't know if it's still true. I think at one time actuaries rated us among the lowest life expectancy of professions the the litigation lawyer um so you you have to kind of resolve yourself that you've got to prioritize taking care of yourself and your family and your relationships 
what about focal points in a professional sense, like mentors? Were there any um, particular lawyers or other people that you aspired towards as a younger lawyer, and how important was that um, towards your own development? Did you work closely under anyone's wing or anything like that? Well, because of the nature of the articling experience, I mean, I was pretty much handed files and told, go do it. <laughs> and I learned to rely on myself, how to go and do it, and then how to do it better and better. Um, you know, I would say the group in Ottawa, and it probably was true in Toronto too, and across the province, the generation that we came along with in the early 70s, changed the way criminal law was practiced. And it wasn't just us. It was a number of other changes with disclosure and then in 82, the charter and so on and so forth. But so I really respected all my peers, all all the people that were, I'd, I'd watch them and I was very proud of the work they were doing here. Uh, you know, I, my buddies in Toronto, uh, Al Gold, Marlis Edward, um, I was really proud of the fact that there was really high-quality professional work being done. Everybody in Ottawa will tell you David Scott was a role model. Um, looking back on it, I think Brian Dixon was probably our greatest chief justice, but I, didn't, I don't aspire to be a judge or a chief justice, so <laughs> he wasn't so much a role model as somebody I was proud of. Hmm. I see. What about um, advocacy? If you know, the question I often ask uh, lawyers is: if you had an inscription on your desk to read as you're making an argument to remind yourself of your 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 key mantra, is there one, um, or at least a couple that you've lived by? I can't think of it in terms of a a, a little like the locker room. Sure. Yeah. Sign. Right. Painted on the wall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I I mean, for me, it's all about preparation. It's, mm -hmm. The whole thing is dedication and preparation. Mm. Develop a the the ten thousand foot view and plan, and then everything is done toward that. Let me ask you about that because uh, I think that's something a lot of younger lawyers really have a hard time grasping is 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 taking time away from the nitty-gritty of preparation right the, and and sort of stepping back and saying what does this come down to and uh, is there a technique that you've you've tried to employ to m make that happen for you or even try and press up other lawyers well i think in fairness to younger lawyers it's it it's not something that's necessarily intuitive it's something you learn with experience i don't necessarily stand back from it as much as I do it contemporaneously with while I'm working on the case, you start to develop the feel for what this case is really about and what the real issues are going to be and where your defense really lies. Mm. Um, and then everything, um, both affirmative evidence that you will call if you're calling evidence all the cross-examinations are structured to build that case, to make that case. Is it necessary in every case, even cases as complex as, you know, for example, Mike Duffy's case, very complicated case. I'm, I can only imagine how much disclosure was involved in that. But even in a case like that, it seems like you're still able to distill it to a rather simple element. Um, it, have you ever had a case where it's just too complex to be able to do that? We've uh, done 
complex um, corporate crimineg caused death. I've done uh, war crimes cases. Uh, I did one in the Soviet Union. We traveled with the KGB. Um, we had to interview the witnesses on, and it was still the Soviet Union. It was 89 before the wall came down. Um, no, I would say uh, even when we went over there, our little group, we knew what we were going to try and get and build from these witnesses. And we had quite a confrontation in KGB headquarters in Moscow where they weren't going to let us do this. We spoke to each other through translators, and we actually had a Khrushchev kind, kind of moment where the chief war crimes procurator for the Soviet Union was banging the table. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get my student, my junior killed here, and we're never going to get out of this country. But um, the Canadian judge had made it clear that the Soviets had to cooperate and let us do this investigation or the case wouldn't go ahead in Canada. How did that come to be? I mean, not many people really know about this, and I don't think I can leave that hanging. So tell me about that. So this was, you, you know, Finta. Oh, right. So, so this was Palowski. This was the second of the uh, Canada's attempts after uh, the code was amended to make retrospective and extraterritorial criminal law part of our criminal law. It was a essentially a, a Stalinesque case that was handed to the RCMP. The Soviets tried to reach out to anybody they thought had collaborated with the Germans uh, post uh, at the start of the war. Molotov and von Ribbentrop for Hitler and Stalin had made a secret pact that the Germans would go into Poland but would divide it up and give half of Poland back to the to, to Stalin and they agreed therefore to stay out. Germans always intended to continue and at the right time open the Eastern Front. And the um, this Polowski guy was studying f to the, be a priest. He was conscripted immediately into the Polish army. They were overrun quickly by the Germans. He was taken prisoner of war. And then they were traded back. He had lived west, uh, east, I'm sorry, of the Bug River where Poland was divided. So he went back and now they were under Soviet rule. And when the Germans came through in 42, they found this guy could read and write. And so they made him the little recording secretary of the local police force because the advancing German troops, I mean, this is kind of well documented. They made impeccable records. That's why they, there were so many prosecutions mm -hmm. about what they did. But they, they also moved their tr troops ahead, so they used locals to run the police. This guy uh, didn't even have a gun, but he could read and write, and so he was the recording secretary for the little police force. So that was his background. Um, there were uh, massacres of uh, gypsies, Poles, and Jews in this area of Belorussia, and he... Uh, the issue was, had he taken part in any of those? And they claimed to have, in statements sent to Canada, uh, people saying he did. So we went and interviewed them. Um, and uh, the senior regional judge here, Jim Chadwick, uh, said we had to have a reasonable opportunity to make full answer in defense. And we said, we want to go there. No Western lawyers had ever gone there. 
Uh, so myself and my junior, Peter Duty, who's now a judge here at this conference, and um, uh, a student, uh, and we got a translator. And we went into Belarusia, and we, we, we went from Moscow to Minsk. We stayed in Minsk for weeks, and we went out into the countryside every day in a KGB van with KGB handlers wow. and met people. And we were very fortunate, Sean, that the wall was about to come down mm. and people were not as afraid. Of, and we, we were in situations in these little villages where we were more popular. We were welcomed warmly. When they found out we were Canadians, um, these little villagers put on feasts for us um, and they were very uh, rude and dismissive of these KGB people. Mm. Now, one key witness who uh, said, look, uh, those statements are completely made up. Uh, we heard stories of how they were tortured into signing these statements against Palowski. And the guy who had been the chief of the local police was the key witness. And he said Palowski had nothing to do with it. He never even had a gun. He wasn't a policeman. He was just the recording secretary. Uh, and this guy had been present at mass murders and had participated. Uh, he'd, he'd done his time in uh, Siberia, uh, and he was being used now by the Soviets. He hadn't been executed, but he'd, he'd done his he would to, to try to round up other collaborators. And he died within two weeks of our interview. Wow. So he'd obviously, I mean, the KGB sat through all these interviews. Um, so things like that happened. Is that what it takes? I mean, like, you know, it's, it's hard to even conceive the amount of uh, dedication that's required to not just travel overseas for a defense, but also uh, even put your own life at, at risk to try and do these things. So, you know, is that these bigger issues going through your mind when you're assigned this? Like, Yeah, we felt in those days, like there were no cell phones. So I felt very far from my family. I got sick while I was there. I had diarrhea. I was examining people in and they had very primitive facilities mm -hmm. in in this part of Belarusia and uh, so I was sick I was carrying this thing I mean I, I have vivid memories of what we went through but thanks to our Canadian judge and his courage they bent over backwards because they were forced to um, they wired us up Mm -hmm. I mean, our hotel rooms were all bugged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a it was a once in a lifetime. Well, not once in a lifetime because I did another one in in what is now Eastern Ukraine in '99 that involved Mennonites, uh, which is a whole different story. But <laughs> and it's part of the the region now that the Russians are trying to take back because it's really Russia. That part, they speak Russian. They don't speak Ukrainian. There. So coming back from that first experience, for example, I mean, obviously you didn't feel defeated as a defense lawyer because you did it again. So what hardened within you or what made you drive harder as a defense lawyer to move on to your career? What do you think you learned from that? Well, it, I mean, Polowski, when we came back with the evidence um, and presented it to the court, we had transcripts, and it meant that, if the trial was going to go ahead, all the Canadian government had to make arrangements to bring all these people. Um, and the 
the Canadian government was so embarrassed about all of these allegations that this was completely made up and they'd been tortured to say this. They didn't, they didn't withdraw the case because they actually appealed this case all the way to the Supreme Court because not only did, was the case dismissed, but we got costs. Mm. And that was the first case. I remember being in the Court of Appeal and Pat Galligan, it was one of those summer appeals where they weren't in 10, they were in two. And Pat Galligan had his feet up on the bench because it was the middle of the summer. <laughs> he was telling the Crown, but costs are the do-re-mi of the legal profession. And, mm. and uh, so the, the Supreme Court uh, dismissed the Crown's application for leave and Pulowski was acquitted and um, we got costs. Wow. Wow. That's an incredible story. What about um, the changes in advocacy over the years? Obviously a lot has changed. You know, uh, How long have you been practicing for now? 46. I'm in my 47th year. So what, what's remained true and what do you think is something that older lawyers like yourself have had a hard time adapting to? So the core is true. Mm -hmm. Advocacy hasn't changed. Um, There are cosmetic changes um, like technology and how to use it and how to format evidence so it's really striking in digital form Mm. and how to reformat complicated email strings and stuff into much more usable material for a judge. That happened in Duffy, for example. Mm. But I had a, for old guys like me, who are not wonderfully technologically savvy, I had a great young junior, John Duty, Peter's son. I mean, I've had two generations of duties <laughs> junior for me. And um, I would say that has changed, but the core has not. Advocates are still advocates and 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 zealous hard-working well-prepared advocacy remains that but the speed of communications disclosure obviously has and disclosure has also meant volume in in criminal files right they're all in boxes now they used to be in a file but now a criminal case once everything gets printed up is boxes and boxes and boxes of material. More expert evidence. And I think there's more um, management. There's, everything's been professionalized. So governments, politics has intruded to, into it. The courts have become more aggressive in their own management to create efficiencies and move cases along. So there's more oversight of time limits and productions and notices those are but i just those are kind of frills uh, around it the core of advocacy remains what it always was i want to ask you a question because you raised um sort of the courts controlling their processes of efficiency and one thing that i've always thought you know, with these rules that are constantly coming down more and more on premise on the idea that we, we need to move faster. It's almost like if you were playing uh, hockey, there's a new rule that if you delay the game at all, then we're going to call a penalty and you're just constantly calling penalties. So looking at a time, you know, 30 years ago where there's probably very little of these rules, it's more just get into court and go compared to today are we creating efficiency or are we totally on the wrong track here or what, what are your thoughts on that 
I think it's a never-ending tension. Um, I think there are other forces that are more insidious, that are bigger threats to what we do than that, than the one you've identified. I mean, I management of processes and trying to lose as little time as possible. I don't find in the cases that I do that the courts don't give me the time that I need. Now, but you're Don Bain. I, I know. <laughs> I'm an older guy, and I, 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 look, I can, I was a scared kid going down. My first court of appeal panel was Gail Schrader and Aylesworth, and it was a crown consent to a sentence appeal. And Aylesworth or Schrader were so angry about this that he had me stand up and say, well, Mr. Bain, my first appearance in the court of appeal, this is your lucky day. And I left there thinking, why did he say that? If, if this was a legitimate appeal and the Crown agreed with it, why was he so adversarial as a judge? Now, that all changed. Arthur Martin changed that. He was a singular change force on what had been a confrontational court of appeal uh, for defense lawyers. Hmm. Um, but no, I, it, the things that are a greater threat nowadays are authoritarianism, populism, lack of respect and knowledge about rule of law, which goes right back to how we are educating our populations in Canada and the West. Um, there is less understanding of the importance of institutions like the rule of law and what it does for us. People don't think about it. They take it for granted. And we've dumbed down a lot of, particularly in politics, uh, approaches to things for simplistic snake oil salesman type solutions. And and that, to me, is a far greater threat to what criminal lawyers and the rule of law and the protection of people against abuses of the power of the state. What are some things that you, you know, if it were up to you uh, and you could change the, the dialogue a little bit with politicians in particular, what would you like to see change? Because, you know, as you seem to be alluding to, there's been a lot of... Um, politicians both on the left and the right taking the view that we can just opine upon cases or judges or particular verdicts do you agree with that like it's you know there are some forces that you have to learn to live with and and, and the media is one of them in 1920 walter lippman wrote a book public opinion i think it was called um and he, he talked about the insidious uh, aspects of media and how simplistic images are more pervasively retained than complicated explanations. I would say the whole of the Duffy case was fought against a prevailing uh, conclusion that he was guilty. Uh, had that been a jury trial, I mean, no juror would have walked in there thinking, "I'm this guy's innocent. Right. So... That's that's kind of like a reality. Has that always been that way? Like, do you you know, if you look back to the no, 80s, for example? No, 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 no. They used to have court reporters. There was a guy in Ottawa, and I'm sure Toronto had its same group and 
Thunder Bay and Brockville and Kingston, where you would have a local journalist who covered the courts. And as she or he did it in Ottawa, the guy who did it was Joe Finn. Joe knew more law than us young lawyers. He'd seen more trials. He knew more trial strategy. He could report on a murder trial in both a very knowledgeable way about the cross-examinations and what they were showing. You don't get that now. You no. get you live get a, tweets, and you. And it's now turned to live tweets, but the, there are also people. It's court reporting isn't highly prioritized. Maybe if you do okay on the local newspaper, then they'll give you city hall, and then if you do really well, you could maybe write about national politics or something. Right. It's the low rung on the ladder, and so the public just thinks there's scandalous stuff going on in the courts, that the courts aren't doing their job, that the judges are too lenient, and that uh, you just hire a what they think of is a mouthpiece and mm-hmm. people are getting away with murder. And nothing could be further from the truth. Right. But how does that change? You know, like one one thing that, and maybe this is too simplistic, but one thing I've often thought that, that has be, really been a detachment from uh, contemporary views is there's no real access to what happens in court, you know, the, and, and cameras for, as one example, uh, or there's no uh, spokesperson for the courts to say this is what's really happening. It's really this black hole where, like you say, the media reports on it and there's no response otherwise. And I think the public, in fairness, looks at it and says, well, there's no response, so we don't know any other. And, you know, you and I as criminal defense lawyers, we know that people certainly aren't getting away from murder. In fact, quite the contrary. If, again, if it was up to you, what, what would you like to see? Well, I've, I've, I actually wrote a chapter in a book about the media and its role in the Duffy case and that whole prospect of having a an official spokesperson for the justice system. I mean, I, I, I think that, that the problem with that is that person... I think would quickly, unless a ver- it was a very special and dignified person with a lot of public credibility, would soon be seen as the, you know, the mouthpiece for the system trying to defend it all the time. Right. Um, I think it's a function of education. I think if both in elementary school and high school, every person in Canadian school Uh, educational system is taught about the importance of the rule of law and some fundamentals of law and and a trial what goes on there'd be an we'd be better equipped to deal with this i think democratic voting populations vote on things they really know nothing about nowadays Mm -hmm. one thing one case in particular that i think is really presented this problem very clearly in the lack of respect for the rule of law or the lack of understanding of the bigger picture um, is the case that you're, I presume, presently involved in still is the Diab case. Um, and what what would you say about that and, and the public's lack of understanding of what was really happening here and the importance of some of the fundamental principles that we share as criminal lawyers? So I think Diab is uh, in some ways exceptional. Um in this regard, it's not just the public. Extradition 
has been allowed to grow up as a backwater, uh, a specialized backwater. Most judges in their whole legal life have never seen or done an extradition. Most lawyers have never seen or done an extradition. It, be, it has evolved as the creature of the International Assistance Group of the Department of Justice. They become the experts, and in a self-fulfilling prophecy, they have developed the law. I mean, even Justice Lafferay on the Supreme Court, who wrote a lot of the early decisions, came from the IAG. He, he, he came from that branch that did extraditions. And everybody else defers to some guy who's done extraditions. Well, I don't know anything about them. He seems to know a lot about it. And we now have a culture of inevitability. In the judiciary, let alone among the lawyers, it will succeed this extradition application. Extraditions always go ahead. I mean, I've heard it reported to me anecdotally that a, a person was sitting by one of our Court of Appeal judges on a, on a plane one day and said, ha, oh, they, they were talking about extradition. The judge said, there's really only two questions on an extradition, window seat or aisle. Hmm. And there's almost that Diab is a product of a system where the, the buzzwords of expedition and summary process have taken root. And that, that is completely wrong. There is no part of our criminal justice system that threatens liberty as drastically as extradition. It's bad enough when you lose your liberty domestically, but it's worse in a foreign country. You go to a culture you don't know. Mm -hmm. You may not, and Diab didn't, speak the language. You don't have family visits. You don't, you can't access your local lawyer. Uh, you are far from home and a stranger in a strange land. That type of erosion of liberty deserves proper protection. And we've gone the other way. There's no sworn evidence required to take a Canadian's liberty to one of these countries. France does not send its nationals to Canada. What do you argue? In, in these cases, well, the, the IAG says, well, comedy justifies this. It's international comedy. There's no comedy with France. There's no reciprocity. France doesn't send its nationals here because they don't trust our system to give a Frenchman a fair trial. Yet we happily, playing the, the, the junior partner in the, in the treaty relationship, send Canadians there. And we do it not on sworn evidence. And people haven't given enough thought to that. That sworn evidence called a record of a case that's just signed by a foreign official, this is, this is the case, um, is presumed reliable, presumed to be reliable evidence. Think about that. There's no sworn evidence of any type in Canada that is presumed reliable. Even sworn evidence has to show its own reliability. It has to be tested. So you've got an unsworn allegation that is presumed reliable, and now through Anderson and Tomlinson and other Ontario Court of Appeal cases, it's a fiction that you can challenge the reliability, the presumed reliability. Manifest unreliability is 
simply a fiction. In Diab, the, the leading handwriting people in the world said, this supposed handwriting opinion, first of all, it's block printing of five words. It's not script writing. You can't compare block, block printing to script writing. There's a 20-year hiatus from the samples they took from Dr. Diab, uh, his sample application for his PhD at Syracuse. And then to their chagrin, they found out, and by the way, those samples from Syracuse weren't written by him. They were written by his wife. She, these two handwriting experts identified, was the 40 to 45-year-old bomber who signed in at the hotel in 1980. Mm. Diab was 26 in 1980. Right. Th that evidence was not manifestly unreliable. Boggles the mind. We have we've completely lost our way on extradition. So it's it's not the run of the mill case. It's it's a specialized backwater of criminal law that needs total reform. So where does that come from? Is that strictly a political issue? Do you think the Supreme Court will will step in and say this is a Section Seven issue? We need to deal with it. No, uh, I don't think on their own. Supreme Court. Dismissed our application for leave uh, without reasons, of course. And um, Ferris, uh, the the leading Supreme Court case on on extradition, is quite frankly a false promise. Hmm. It's the the notion that it is constitutional because you can you can demonstrate the unreliability of this presumed reliable unsworn foreign allegation is a fiction. You can't. You can't. There has to be absolutely no evidence at all. You can be extradited on unreliable evidence, and Diab proves that. So it's there. there is currently an external review ongoing. You've been very critical of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the terms of reference are very disappointing. Uh, the prime minister said, we're going to get to the bottom so Mr. Diab knows exactly what went wrong here and so this doesn't happen again and they're not going to find out exactly what went wrong because they've limited the documents that that mr siegel can look at what he's allowed to report on he's not undertaking a review of the extradition act and its procedures right and uh, so yeah it's a unique case when do you think we'll see the if there is a final result on that one way or the other I think, uh, well, October 28th, there is the final uh, judgment of the French Court of Appeal. The prosecutor has appealed the uh, decision of the two investigative judges in France uh, to release him and, and saying there's no case here at all. Logic tells, I, I have, uh, my client has a copy of that 81-page ruling. Um, I've read it. It's impossible on a common sense and logical basis to imagine that the prosecutor could succeed on that appeal given the findings, what the evidence shows. Um, that 81 pages is full of evidence conclusively establishing the innocence of this guy. He wasn't even in France. He was in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. He was studying for and writing exams. They've got documentary proof of that in Lebanon. They've got witnesses who wrote the exams with him. But there's nothing. There's been nothing logical about Diab. Are nothing. You, are so, you fearful that they're going to, you know, the commission's going to come back and say, ta-da, it works? 
because you know here is the the system that was put through the the French system and I don't think anybody could look you're not supposed to be extradited for investigation when that act was being debated in parliament and passed and in Ferris chief justice McLaughlin said it is for trial not to languish during a foreign investigation mm. nobody could say 3 plus years of solitary confinement during a foreign investigation. France was never, they never said, we've got a case against this guy to try him. They just wanted to question him, to investigate further, hear his side of it, and then investigate that. Mm -hmm. And um, that is exactly, our Court of Appeal said in a heartbreaking line, it is clear to us that Dr. Diab will not simply languish in prison during a foreign investigation. And for the next three years and two months, that's exactly what happened to him. So let me um, change the pace a little bit because I want to, um, I think that was a very important discussion to have and that's why I'm glad we took some time. But from a practical point of view, when you look at these big cases like Diab, someone comes, not necessarily comes into your office, but let's say you agree to take on a case like Diab or, or Duffy, what's sort of the workflow that happens with you? Um, is it something where you, I just don't know how one would even approach a case of such magnitude. Well, Duffy isn't every case. Um, I tend to do a lot of my own work. I'm, I don't like some lawyers delegate reading of transcripts to other people. I mean, when I'm preparing examinations and cross-examinations, I read all the material myself, make notes on it, uh, organize it. Um, so, but every case I do that way. I, I, I think that every case from, and you know this from your own practice, Every case to that client is the most important case in the world, and it deserves attention and, and your best effort. And so, I mean, I'm, I would just say I'm a thorough lawyer. I know lots of thorough lawyers. I know lots of great lawyers. I don't know any geniuses. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, so right. the concept of heroes in the criminal law, there's, there's the heroes to me are the unsung people who do this job and they don't get awards and they don't have any and they don't get in the media and they still show up for that client and they aren't making a lot of money and they're bright and well-intentioned people. Those are the heroes. I'm sure a lot of uh, lawyers walking around the court courthouses will like to hear that sort of encouragement <laughs> um, because it really does feel like a thankless job at times, you know, and sometimes uh, even the clients themselves think that you're part of the system, particularly if you're acting on legal aid. Is there something that you've learned with client management that has really helped you develop relationships with them and trust? No, I've kind of had a boilerplate approach to... I spend a lot of time in initial interviews with the client, learning about the client right back from birth and the client's family. I think it's important to humanize the client and get to know that client, where they're coming from. Now, uh, I was defending Ontario Power Generation in a, in a, in a case up uh, on the Madawaska River. So that's a different type of client. But with human clients, I start the same way, and it's initially about the client as a person, uh, the client's family, the client's experiences, and then building out from there. 
I think it's like I said earlier on. I mean, if you're the kind of person that can empathize with people who end up charged with criminal offenses and not look upon them necessarily as different from you, just another human being who's in a tough, tough position, and what can you do properly, professionally, legally to help this person? Um, and you build out the defense from there. I, I don't think there's one thing I can point to, Sean, that says, this is how I've learned to deal with clients. Mm. Mike Duffy uh, was hated. And, and that was the picture in the media. He was the, uh, the pig at the trough. Uh, he had, uh, he, among journalists, he was a, a traitor to their own cause. He, he had been one of them, and now he switched over, and now he was at the trough with all the corrupt politicians. But he was the apotheosis of corruption. I found him quite different as a human being. I learned about his background. His family, they are rooted in PEI. I mean, this image that he was a carpetbagger simply wasn't true. His, his grandfather was the speaker of the legislature. His, uh, uh, he had relatives who were judges in PEI. He grew up in Charlottetown. His whole life was there. He was asked to leave high school as a Christmas graduate in grade 10 because he was running a little radio show. Uh, you know, he was already trying to be a journalist. He was a lousy student, and he he's honest about himself. Uh, I found, and so it was kind of a treat to this scoundrel was actually <laughs> an intriguing person, and you had something good to work with. So let me ask you about the media then, because obviously that's part of what was happening here, if not almost exclusively. What tips do you have in dealing with the media, whether it's coming out onto the courtroom steps and knowing that there's uh, a big group waiting there for you, or whether it's just, um, uh, rather it's, it's developing a larger strategy on how to deal with them? So my first rule was always, I never tried to court the media. Um, we all know lawyers who do. I always resented that and I always felt that judges uh, resented that. And so I, I tried to just do my work in the courtroom. Nowadays, and depending on the nature and profile of a case, it's harder to do. Dealing with the media, be honest and succinct. Duffy was like the case was spread over three years. The trial itself went on and off over the course of one calendar year. I mean, it was daily running a gauntlet of television cameras and microphones uh, because it was seen to have an effect on the government of the day. That's what it was. It wasn't the trial. It was the political implications. Mm -hmm. And the client was instructed... And he, it was expected that he loved a microphone and would be blabbing nonstop, and he was wonderful. He never said anything. He conducted himself appropriately, quietly, professionally, in a dignified way, showed respect for the court. And I think the lawyer has to do the same thing. And I'd be asked, what cross-examination are you going to do today? What are you going to ask Nigel Wright today, Mr. Bain? And, mm -hmm. you know, the judge has the right to hear that before the media and the media will get it wrong and you'll so you you just say 
I, I got to know all the cameramen mm-hmm. and I was very polite and nice with them. And they understand, you know what? The media respect you if you are restrained and professional. Yes, they want, they want that sound bite. And they'll use you to get it if you're stupid enough to give it to them. <laughs> right. But if you are restrained and professional and you do it day after day after day, they kind of shake their heads and they respect that. They say, you know, we're not going to get anything out of this guy. And they, all, they also think that's the kind of guy I'd like representing me. What does a great day look like to you, Don? Uh, sunshine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> trees thriving yeah gardens growing <laughs> yeah um yeah is yeah. there any anything that you know you, you sort of look forward to after a long trial that that's your escape well i think um you will know this all criminal lawyers do the end of a trial is really a release valve mm-hmm. right it's it's a great moment i mean even if you lose and you're you're blue and you feel there was an injustice here, whew, that's <laughs> over for now. You 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 learn more from your losses, but given the modern world, you move on to the next one. But there's that little period where there's an incredible freedom for just a little while before the next one starts, and there's almost no feeling like it, that's and true. especially if it's been successful. There's no feeling like it. People who don't do this work don't know it. And that's why it is, in many ways, the greatest job in the world. It's a hard job if you take it seriously because you hurt for the clients. You hurt if you think injustice or lies or fabrications have gone on. But when you can help somebody and the system works um, the, it's the greatest job in the world. Last question to you, Don. Maybe I already know the answer with all the discussion about DIA, but if you could change one part of uh, the criminal justice system <laughs> or the justice system, uh, what do you think really needs a revamp? Uh, what we're trying to do right now. Uh, I've written to the Prime Minister uh, about the Extradition Act. I implore the government. I, I'm going to do everything in my power Um uh, I, we don't think this external review is a credible alternative to a public inquiry, but the government uh, can, on its own, initiate a review of the Extradition Act that's meaningful and substantive change to the Act. I mean, that's what's right in front of us now. Um, sure, there's other things that there's a series of Supreme Court decisions on detention and questioning of suspects mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are unfortunate, to say the least. I, there's some move back now away from that, but that could change further. We don't want to be a police state and, and uh, even have any remnants of that. So, But I would say right now the thing right in front of us is the Extradition Act. Well, I think if there's any lawyer that can do it, I'm sitting across the table from him. So it's been a real pleasure, Don. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sean. Good job. Thank you.